Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, And today our guest is Amy Liz Harrison of the Eternally Amy podcast. She is going to share her story of struggling with alcohol, being a mom of eight, and how finally in one very difficult moment she had to face herself and face the consequences of her drinking. She shares her whole story from the beginning all the way to the end and to where she is now living a fulfilling life that is meaningful, connected, and authentic. I think you're really going to get a lot out of this episode. Amy just brings her whole self to the interview and just shares it all. So I loved having her on the podcast and I think you're going to enjoy it as well. And if you are enjoying this podcast, write a review in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. That really does help a lot of people find the podcast. And I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, let's go ahead and get this episode going. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a great guest today, Amy Liz Harrison. She is the host of the Eternally Amy podcast and author of several amazing books, Externally Expecting and Internally Awkward. So, and a mom of eight and in recovery. And I'm excited, Amy, to hear about your adventure. So I'm going to have you just jump in and introduce yourself, and we're going to start from there. Oh, my goodness. Dwayne, thank you so much for having me. I'm super pumped to be here, and I loved having you on Eternally Amy, and I literally just had to move a candle because I thought I was going to catch on fire a second ago, so I apologize. But um, yeah, you know, my sobriety date is April 23rd of 2011. And I can tell you that I never pictured getting sober. In fact, I didn't even really picture alcohol being a part of my life at all growing up. I mean, it just wasn't a thing. 
And what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up in California. I was born in LA and raised in the Bay Area. And at a young age, my parents took me to church. And so I really built a life and a foundation around faith. And what ended up happening for me was kind of in those early years, I really had those senses and feelings of, I don't really know if I belong. I feel different, different from everybody else, not as able to handle life as other people were. And, you know, I had a couple incidences just growing up where it was just clear to me that I didn't have as much insulation as other right. kids, that I was a little more sensitive than other kids, and that things just affected me differently. And, you know, I just really struggled with that. I had friends and I had buddies, but it was just kind of one of those things where I just really, I was, you know, concerned about where I was going to find this manual to life because it was not showing up in my mailbox. So something right from the beginning wasn't feeling right for you. Like it was like, I don't fit in. I, I don't feel right. Uh, I have a discomfort about me and I don't understand it. Right. And coupled with that was going to church was very much this, oh, well, you should be able to get through anything because you've got God. And so right. that's the message that at least I was interpreting from what the church was telling me. And so then there was this weird kind of thread of shame that went along with feeling overly sensitive, you know, sort of like I shouldn't feel that way. Right. I should be feeling this way. I, I'm in the church. I'm trying to do this, yet I don't match what I'm being told I should match. And right. there must be something wrong with me. I'm somehow broken, flawed. Right. Right. And so as a result, I thought, well, let me just do more Bible studies. Let me just get involved in another prayer group. And it was constantly this, like, I want to change the way I feel because the way I feel isn't right. You know, right. I just constantly, I mean, the comparing myself to everybody's, my insides to everybody else's outsides and perceiving that everybody else was doing fine. And that I was different yeah. and unhappy. So by the time I got to high school, you know, I mean, I just wasn't popular. I was not invited to drinking parties. It wasn't a part of my life. You know, I was in the youth group and I was doing my thing there, still feeling those feelings, still feeling untalented. Basically, right. I sang in the worship band and I was terrible. And But I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be a part of something. Went yeah. off to college, had the occasional Bartles and James with people after work. But I really don't remember at all feeling like alcohol. If anything, alcohol actually scared me a little bit because I saw other people's behavior when they were drinking. And I thought, I don't want to get out of control like that. And so when I would drink on the rare occasion that I would have a Bartles and James <laughs> wine cooler. Right. Yep. I remember, I remember those days. that, yeah, that feeling of feeling loopy or sort of not right. I was done. I did not like it. So 
I would categorize myself as a normal drinker up until I had actually four kids. But every time that I drank, I never thought about it again until the next time that I had a glass right. of wine or whatever it was. But and I meanwhile, do... you have this like undercurrent of this discomfort, not fitting in, not really finding your space, not really finding your place right. as you're as you're going through this journey. Exactly. And so I do remember distinctly one Thanksgiving where the, I just turned 21 and I was a senior in college and came home. My mom gave me a glass of champagne with dinner and I just felt like, wow, I mean, I didn't realize how badly I felt inside until I had right. something to compare it to. And so you know, I was giddy and giggly and everything was fun and funny. And I felt connected to people around the table. And I loved that. I thought that was great. But again, it's not like that was a one and done and my drinking took off. I just remember that as being the first time that I thought, oh, there's something good in here. There's something good in this alcohol that I really kind of, that was a good experience for me. It's kind of like noted and then, yeah, it's like, finally, I can feel connected in a weird way, you know, right. relaxed. The, the shame dissipates a little bit and you can kind of show up, I guess. And I was comfortable in my own skin for yeah. 10 minutes and that felt really good. And so, you know, fast forward to I graduate, I get married. We ended up moving to the Seattle area and Seattle, I, I will make no excuses for it. It is a tough place to move to. At least it was in 2001 when we moved. It's just, you know, there's a term Seattle freeze, and I would describe that as accurate. Maybe not so much anymore because there are a lot of transplants here now, but I really wanted to get connected and get to know people. I was pregnant with my first baby, and I was kind of like doing this whole like, Hi, you know, I just want right. to meet everybody <laughs> and uh, get involved in mommy groups and all this stuff. And and everybody here was kind of like, that's great. OK, you're from California, first off. And second off, we all have our groups. So, yeah. Hi. And then kind of go about their business sort of thing. So I did get involved in a book club that sort of accepted applications. And I just <laughs> say that kind of as a joke. But um, right, right. So you're trying to fit in here, but not really finding a groove and not really yep. finding people. And, oh, that's yep. difficult. Yeah. And so my neighbor invited me to this book club. And I'd go and I'd have a glass of wine after I had the baby. And I just would not even think about it till the next month. So, again, at least this is my opinion and reflection, is that I had a really healthy relationship with alcohol at that point. Yeah, and then yeah. what started to happen was I moved to a different neighborhood and that neighborhood, you know, unbeknownst to me and and they were wonderful people, but they were drinkers. And so every afternoon we'd go out in the cul-de-sac and by this point I had four little kids and we would just watch our kids play and we would eat cheese and drink wine. And I'll tell you what, I started feeling like 
I've arrived. This is glamorous life right here. I mean, right. You know, top shelf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got it. It's good. It's good stuff. And I felt very much a part of things. You know, I felt a part of this group of neighbors. I felt like we were just kind of BFFs. And I realized that I was drinking a little bit more than I had originally anticipated. Like the whole one glass of wine at a book club thing, that was gone. By this point, you know, we were definitely polishing off two bottles of wine in an afternoon. And then a turning point for me was I realized, man, I really feel during like nap time or other times during the day, I was a stay-at-home mom. I had been a teacher in California, but, you know, in Washington, I'm staying at home, which is great and wonderful, but it was challenging also for me. And so I'm like folding laundry during nap time. And I felt like, you know, I'd kind of lost my identity as a person by this point, you know, just cleaning up messes after kids. And I thought, you know, geez, I think I know if I had a glass of wine, I'd feel less bored right now, or it would just be fun and exciting. And I'd feel like a classy lady folding laundry. And so I started to have alcohol become something that entertained me, something that became my treat, something that was my companion if I was by myself. And the progression started from that point. Do you think that like, as you're in this phase of your life, you know, you were talking about your childhood, that undercurrent of disconnection kind of flowing into that, even though, you know, it's it's there, but it's it's not really conscious at that point, but it's 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 still present in you. I don't know if that makes sense. And then mm-hmm. this this wine, this drinking kind of keeps pushing that away, that feeling away. Yes. Yes, exactly. And that's why I started really loving it is because I realized that it changed the way I felt. So if I was having a day where I just really felt insecure and just really was frustrated with the kids and feeling like I couldn't connect to that realization that, oh, these kids are a blessing and, you know, and I'm still in church at this point. So I'm like going to church all the time and just trying to like pray my way out of my feelings and just feeling guilty for feeling that way. And, and when I drank, all of that went away. It just dissipated. It's like a relief. It's like, oh my gosh. Right. That was a fantastic feeling. And You know, I think a huge part of that for me, a huge part of that was taking on the perceptions of, you know, how I was viewing the world. So my lens was a little bit messed up by that point, too, because I'm still looking at everybody else's outsides and people bringing, you know, their kids to play dates, super dressed up and super cute. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, why can't I get my act together? I need to do better. There was always that sense of, I wasn't doing enough, you know, go to somebody's house. It looked like a magazine, you know, and my own house was just like, I mean, I was kind of like just Barney fifing my way through all the motherhood things, trying to figure it out. 
and just doing a sloppy job of it from my perception. So I was just beating myself up internally and getting in this whole ball of self. Yeah. So everything was like, I'm not me. I'm la la la. And then really what ended up happening was I just got sick of myself. So then when I drank, I felt like, Hey, I'm, I am everybody's connective tissue friend. That's I, I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it really was doing good things for me. I really right. did. You're, you're like, <laughs> almost like I, I imagine in the, in the moment, like you said, this is really doing the, the thing for me. It's taking away this pain, the shame, the I'm not good enough, all these kind of cognitive distortions that you're thinking about yourself and how you're even your lens of the whole world. And I would imagine at the time you're not that conscious of it. I, I, I'm assuming this is this kind of consciousness comes through the work that you've done with yourself. But at the time, it's working. You know, it's like this takes it all away. Right, right. And I didn't see any kind of a problem with it, except that I kind of knew the church would sort of frown upon this kind of behavior. So. I tried to kind of keep it a little bit secret that I was drinking with my neighbor friends. And at that point, I started realizing I'm kind of leading a double life. Yeah. And so once I got to that point, it was like, okay, well, oh, well, I mean, what am I going to do about it? So I developed this harsh kind of, I don't care or I don't want to care. So I'm going to act like I don't care. And started getting in trouble with my husband. My husband would come home and he'd say, did you drink that entire bottle of wine last night? And so, of course, I started minimizing. Oh, well, no. So-and-so came over. We split it. And I did have a best friend who would come over. We would drink together. She would take my empties to her house because her husband drank as much as I was starting to. And... And she was drinking with me. And so she'd show up with things. And it was just really this toxic, you know, unhealthy enabling situation where, funny enough, we're both sober today. And she just celebrated 12 years. So that's just a little sidebar. It's amazing what can happen, you know, when you get sober. But um, so it it was just it was starting to really get out of control. And then I would say the the real spiral was. When I just said, this is something is wrong with me. I probably have postpartum depression. I probably have something. I'm going to go and get a diagnosis. And so I went to my psychiatrist, lied about how much I was drinking, told him I had anxiety, got Xanax prescribed. So I was drinking and taking Xanax and got to the point, couldn't get out of bed. And that's when my husband said, you know, I'm going to go ahead and put you on a plane We're going to take care of the kids, but I want you to go ahead and go, you know, feel free to work on your postpartum depression, which I, you know, I believe I had. I definitely believe I had. And that's because I've had kids since being sober and it's been, you know, the same feelings. But I definitely believe that the alcohol, you know, was like pouring gasoline on a fire. It just didn't help at all. If, If anything, it completely inflamed the situation. Yeah, I was just thinking of that, like how this is just building. It's like the slow build of just kind of you start with that little bit of shame and I'm I'm not good enough. And then you start adding this to the pile 
introduce Xanax as an anti-anxiety med, but you're still like, you're still having all these feelings, depression, it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it sounds like your husband could see that probably maybe more than you could see it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it got to the point I wasn't hiding anything. I thought I was. I mean, just, you know, just a few bad, bad nights of me waking up in my clothes from the night before, that kind of thing. And so he knew if he told me, you're going to go to rehab for alcohol, there's no way I would have gone. And I told him that because I truly at that point felt like, this is my security blanket. What would I do if I didn't drink or who would I be? I mean, by this point, it was totally who I was. And I was physically addicted. I had the shakes in the morning, the whole nine yards, you know, and then I'd overcompensate and get up and make my kids breakfast, like a hot breakfast. So I'd feel better about myself, like that I could tell myself I was a good mom. Right. Yeah. And so he was very patient with me, but said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to take you down here so you can work on your depression. So I went to rehab, which turned out to be rehab. (laughs) (laughs) But you didn't know it was rehab, but it's rehab. It was rehab. And, you know, I listened to all the groups and I listened to my case manager and my counselor. And I thought, man, you guys are, you're kind of messed up. I literally had an ego and a pride in me that was unbelievable. I didn't even consider, I didn't consider that perhaps I had alcoholism too. I knew something was off, like deep down, I knew something was off, but I thought, you know what? I mean, look at the signs that you guys are all displaying. You guys have legal problems. You know, I don't have that. yeah. Yeah. What do you mean? Totally. So I told myself I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic. And P.S. I'm from a really good family. I, you know, grew up in the church. Every excuse that I could come up with when deep down inside, I knew something was wrong. And I secretly kind of identified with the feelings that they were talking about in group. But I did not want to admit that, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, if you admitted that, that would like, oh my gosh, that would like at that time in that moment blow up. Right, right. And, and, you know, I just wasn't ready. But what I did was, of course, I figured out by being there, I'm going to have to go ahead and parrot this stuff back to them so that I can get out of here, is what I was thinking. So I sort of faked my way through rehab. And one day we were walking by this Italian restaurant and I just saw all the bottles in the window. And it was like, boom, I just was salivating. And I was like, I can't wait to get to the airport and drink. And I made up my mind at that moment that that's what was going to happen. And that's what I did. And so my husband picked me up from rehab and I was drunk because I drank the entire way home on the plane. And then I spent the next two weeks telling all those neighbor friends and everybody I knew that basically rehab had taught me how to drink normally. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, I was just thinking of the mental gymnastics that 
Mm-hmm. We can go through to not look at our stuff that that we don't want to look at about ourselves. You know, it's like the mental gymnastics is just amazing how we can how we can fool ourselves and just be in denial. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's so true. I I love that term. That's a great term, mental gymnastics, and that's what I was doing. I mean, it was a full time job, honestly. To first of all try and drink and then convince people I wasn't drinking. I mean, it's like, it's a lot of work, pretty desperate, you know, pretty desperate. And I think I kind of was hoping that the longer I did that, it might become true that maybe I could, Mm. you know, manifest it or something. And, you know, maybe, maybe it was just God's will for me to just kind of become this normal drinker again, because I was there before, right? That's the part that really had me clinging sort of to the past where I just thought, well, I can certainly get back there. I just, just, this is a character flaw. And so then I drink over that, over again, this ball of self. And so, What happened was, you know, two weeks after rehab, I went to pick up my kids. I had been drinking all morning and I picked them up. And on the way home, I got pulled over for a DUI Ouch! or possible DUI. Yeah. And of course it was the, it was like a lifetime movie because literally, because it was on the main drag through town. It was right, of course, at three o'clock. Everybody was picking up their kids. And so people saw me from the town and it got around like wildfire, I guess. And it was kind of one of those experiences where I don't remember much. But what I do remember is doing the sobriety test where you walk the line. And then my husband told me later that I basically said to the cops, okay, it's been nice. I got to go because I'm trying to get my kids home safely. And, you know, it's terribly tragic and sad when you hear someone tell a story like this, right? And you just want to get mad. Like it makes me mad, you know? Right, right. I just want to pause for like a second and just say like that those feelings are totally those are valid feelings. And before I understood the disease of addiction, I mean, I just had no tolerance at all, no empathy for any of these stories. And now having been there myself, while I reach back and I tell the story, it feels like a different person because in a sense it was, I know it was me, but what, I mean, I'm a different person today. Right. Yeah. So that's that's just the distinction that I like to make there is that it was a road that I never expected to travel. And here I am, you know, in handcuffs being brought to jail. And then my neighbor came down and picked up my kids. And if she hadn't, they would have gone to Child Protective Services because my husband couldn't get there in time to, you know, just a mess. Oh, my goodness. So it was, you know what? It was the gift of desperation though, that I needed because that night lying in King County jail on the rubber mattress, tossing and turning and looking at what my life had become and looking at the reality of, you know, and that was not the first time by the way that I had driven with my kids in the car while I was drunk. It was just the first time I got caught. 
and God willing the last time. And so looking at that, as I sobered up throughout the night, that was, that was pretty intense. To have to see that through sober eyes, like you, you just can't deny you're in the prison. You can't deny this anymore. There's, there's something real here. And to take accountability for that is, I mean, that's painful. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a dark, dark night. And I think that, you know, the biggest part of it was I felt so hollow inside and I felt like this vapor of a person. I didn't even know who I was anymore, but I couldn't believe that the person that I proved to be was somebody who would drive drunk with their kids in the car. I just couldn't conceptualize that. So I thought, well, here I am. So it's obviously true. And I had this fear of failure if I tried to get sober and it didn't work, but I had an excuse for everything, you know? And so I thought, well, geez, I don't even know if I still have a marriage at this point. I, you know, hadn't spoken to my husband. I didn't know what was going on there. I might as well at least try. I might as well try to get sober because really what other choice do I have? I mean, I, I, I need to try. It's that moment of like, I've, I just really just have to surrender to this because if I try and fight it, I, I, I don't even know how to fight it anymore. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that was my point of surrender where I just really thought, well, you know what? I'm going to have to try and do this for me. And not because my husband is sending me and not because friends are noticing that I'm drinking a lot. I need to try for me because I really, I want a good life. I, I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be that person, you know? And so I just had a little tiny spark of willingness at that point. And that was what I needed. And that was enough to get me back on the plane, go back to the same rehab and just walk in the doors and just go, okay, (laughs) you know, I'm here. And one of the case managers came out and everybody had kind of said when they heard I was coming back, oh, we didn't know, we didn't see it. We didn't, we thought, you know, cause I was lying that I had convinced them that I was going to be okay. And so I walk in and one of the case managers said, are you done yet? Oh. And it was like, yeah, I I'm done denying it. Like this is, you know, this is beat me. And yeah. I didn't have, you know, I had nothing. I mean, I was just broken raw, just sliced open. Nothing there, nothing, nothing, nothing there. left. And it's such a it's such a painful space to be in, but it's like the place you start. Uh, it's oh. right, and that's what that's exactly right because that's what they said. They said, "Well, we can work with this." You know, yeah. this you're is, like work with what? I don't. Yeah, I don't have anything left to work with. It feels yeah. that way anyway. Yeah, and that's what's crazy. That's what I found to be the onset of the crazy and wildly wonderful part of recovery is that. So many things were the opposite of what I thought, you know, like there's all these paradoxes that in my mind don't make any sense. Like, how can you possibly, 
say that you can work with this. I've got nothing to give you. I'm just like this crying, blubbering mess, you know, but slowly day by day, as we unpacked all of that and I got a temporary sponsor there and she told me it's, it's going to be okay. And I said, like, did you hear what I just said though? I was driving drunk with my kids in the car and I got pulled over in the story and, and she goes, no, it's going to be okay. And I just, could not even understand that. It's like you got to have someone else hold it for you because yeah. you can't do it. I mean, you yeah. just don't have it. You just, it's like, there's no way this is going to be okay. And that's such a good way of putting it too, is, you know, just having others kind of carry you through that, that early, early part and just, you know, hold space. Absolutely. I mean, oh my gosh, I just like hearing that story and, you know, going from where you have this kind of, You've convinced yourself everything's fine and you're okay. And then to just kind of, in a way, just be slammed down. And thankfully, you know, it wasn't worse, right? And thankfully your kids are okay and all of that. And having to to face that and see it and see it, it's, it's public too. I mean, like you said, you're on the main drag and everybody knows and you can't hide from it anymore. You can't hide the shame. You can't hide this imperfection. It's, it's out there. Yep. Yeah. Out there. It's the talk of the town, the whole nine yards. And so when I got home, it was like, okay, I do not have the strength to get to work on this, but I also don't have a choice. And so, you know, I had to constantly run into people at the grocery store and who would kind of look the other way. And you know what? I get that. If someone had lied to me and then gone and done this tragic thing, I I get that, you know? So those were still painful. It's still painful. Yeah. Those were some hard, hard days. And I was really fragile, like really fragile. Someone in the early days of my sobriety, and I mean early, like a month in, said, Hey, can you come talk to our Bible study about, you know, your story and getting sober? And I was like, okay. And I, you know, you can't transmit something that you don't have. And I'm sitting there in front of these women and I've got like a shaky voice and I'm like totally unsure if this is going to last and if I'm going to make it, but I'm like trying to provide some hope and inspiration. And it's just like, uh, but you know, it is what it is. And You know, I think the big thing for me was just slowly following directions, starting to just get used to doing the things I didn't want to do and just eating a chunk of that humble pie in terms of like, I got to do this stuff, whether I like it or not. I have legal issues now. So thank you, higher power for my legal issues, which kept me going to meetings and My friend who I mentioned earlier, who's sober, she was sober by this point. She got sober six months before I did. And you know what? I, oh, I needed her so much. I needed her. The universe just put us together and she was such a great support for me because she had seen my before. She was part of the transformation of kind of both of us, but really me who, you know, in my last days was still having her go get me wine. And so, and she was newly sober at that point. And then the after sort of path where, 
we've now totally turned into these two different people. So anyway, that's an aside, but I needed her support is the point. And I got a sponsor. I do realize there are tons of different ways to get sober these days. And some people aren't comfortable with the term alcoholic, but I'm totally comfortable with that. That's how I refer to myself. I think for me, that was an important step is saying that and claiming that identity and, and word. And I don't find it disempowering. I find it empowering. At first I did find it disempowering. I didn't like it. I felt like it was a label and I felt like it was pretty shameful, but really how much more shameful can you get? Like what's, what's one other thing, you know, at that point (laughs) when you're at uh... bottom. Yeah. 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 I, I have a question. Yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of times like we, we can see like, when did you know you had a problem? But, you know, on the other flip side of that, bringing hope to this process, when did you start to say, you know, things are getting better? Things are moving along. How, how did you start to see that as you get through this really dark, dark time yeah. that you're going through? When, when, when did you start to go, wait, wait a minute, you know, maybe it will, maybe, maybe that counselor is right. It is going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened for me that really did give me that idea of, huh, kind of pause, like I'm not quite as miserable as I was a month ago was when I realized that the obsession to drink was starting to dissipate and be removed. So when I first got back, you know, I was going to these meetings and it was like, I was literally salivating because they were talking about alcohol and, you know, I'd get in my car and I'd be like, ah, and I called my temporary sponsor at that point who I was still working with. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. I'm like so thirsty. And she said, have you prayed for the obsession to be removed? I hadn't. So I started doing that and it wasn't a burning bush moment, but I was so desperate to get freedom. I just yeah. needed freedom from that feeling of, I just want to drink. I want to drink. I want to drink. And so once that started to kind of go away, I mean, and I couldn't see how it was going, going to go away because the meetings I thought were kind of perpetuating the problem because they were talking about alcohol. And so it was crazy. One day I was like, I, yeah, I'm not craving, I'm not craving a drink today. And that was just like a turning point and it started to get better. And I started to not focus so much on the differences that I saw in 12 step meetings You know, I started focusing on the similarities, which is something that I was told to do early on. And I had a hard time with it until that point. I, it was like, I could hear better. And I started really listening to the language of the heart. I got a sponsor and we did the 12 steps. That was huge for me. It was life changing for me. Just realizing that, oh, So with a sense of powerlessness over alcohol, I actually have power because in looking at my life and dumping my junk drawer out of all the things and doing a fourth step, 
and looking at the fourth column with my sponsor and trying to figure out what is my part? What is my part in all the resentments that I've developed over the years in all of the things that I've wanted to blame somebody else for or, you know, shove the responsibility away? I mean, right. that was huge to realize, no, I, I have power in this situation. And then going through, you know, later going through the amends process or looking at my character defects first and and being comfortable with saying, yeah, I have these character defects that I I don't like. They don't serve me yeah. well. And I really want to just let my higher power have those. And just going through all those processes and then getting to my year birthday, my first year birthday of staying sober for a whole year. And I mean, P.S., I'm still to this day still married, but I mean, there were people who just stuck by my side during that first year when just it was a roller coaster, right? And my husband was just a huge, huge support during that time. So when we got to that one year birthday, and I say we because he got there too, right? Like he was just as much a part of my recovery as I was. He never said, Oh, I don't want you to go to a meeting tonight. You haven't been around the house. He was like, go, just, just go. Whatever you're doing, just keep, keep doing it, you know? And um, he was starting to get little glimpses of his wife again, which was enough for him to sign off on 12 step programs and anything else that would benefit my recovery. So we got to that one year birthday and it was like, I can't believe we made it. We had all the crunchy firsts, you know, first sober concert, first sober sex, first everything. And making it through those milestones, the biggest part of that for me was realizing, you know what? It is okay if it feels uncomfortable to do some of these things and it feels cringy, that's okay. It does not have to feel amazing and that emotions are motion, right? And so it's going to change. I'm going to feel great. I'm going to feel not great. It's part of life. Nobody ever said, but somehow I developed a messaging from what I had taken from church. I was supposed to be happy all the time. And then I realized that that is not true. And so through all of those processes, just going, you know what? Yeah, I might walk up on stage and embarrass myself, or I might say something stupid that I need to go apologize for or not. Maybe it's just out there because it it was just something dumb that I said. Oh, well, and learning to just wear life like a loose garment started to come as my recovery progressed. And I started sponsoring people and and really realizing that it was okay to be a human being with feelings and really to walk through those feelings and to process them just was so much better than trying to numb them out Yeah, because trying to obliterate them only kept them down so long. And so... yeah. It was, it was just kind of, and it still is to this day, a journey of me just 
being comfortable in a costume that is maybe ill-fitting or whatever it is that makes me look, you know, weird or strange or different. I don't even care. It's like, I want more of that because when I tried to be and remain this polished person, I was only in captivity from a life of liberation and joy. I see that now. I couldn't see it then, right? Because you just um, can't. You can't. You can't can't see it. I mean, it just when you hear this, and I look at the overarching story of this, it's like from running from yourself to embracing yourself. Like you said, being comfortable with your humanity and and that process of of having to go through that journey and. Like you said, it's it's like so when we start to just embrace ourselves as we are with all our awkwardness or, you know, all our character defects or whatever they are, and we just embrace it all, it's just so much easier. And, and we just embrace our humanity. So we're kind of getting close to the end. I, I want to talk quickly about your your books, Eternally Expecting and Internally Awkward, and where you got the energy to write these and put them out there and... Tell me a little bit about that part of the story. So when the pandemic hit, (laughs) I had time because I wasn't driving kids around everywhere to 10,000 practices. I had four kids, extra kids, bonus babies in sobriety. And so I was kind of busy, busy, just driving everywhere. And then I didn't have to. I got the gift of staying at home. And that's when I wrote the books. People had been telling me for a while, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I had been an English teacher. And I just kind of thought, with what time? And the universe gave me time. That's awesome. Yeah. That's so great. That, that's just great. And, you know, I think that's another statement of when you're in recovery and you're living your your, your best conscious life as best you can, right? We're all human. Is that you get to you get to put these things out there and and manifest these things because you're a little more conscious of what you're doing, of your time and where you spend your time and how you put your time out there and that's that's awesome. Yeah, thank you, thank you so, so much. Such a good life. Yeah, it is, and I, I think your story really is a, a story of a hope and you know shows us that we, even through that darkness we can we can find a way out. We can we can get to the other side, get get support. And so, so as I get close to the end, I, I love to ask like one more one more question. And if anybody out there is struggling, maybe there's another mother another mom. You know, we we didn't even get to. Well, maybe we have to have you come back on and talk about having eight kids and moving through all of that because I would love to know about that too. And and maybe they're out there struggling. What would you want to tell them? What would you want to say if you could tell them one thing? So what I would tell them is first, like, don't let this facade fool you. I was the one walking around my neighborhood. I didn't know if it was six a.m. or six p.m. I mean, I was in a house coat the whole thing, and now I had no. I mean just the consideration that perhaps my life could get better was not a thing for me. I couldn't even conceptualize that. So I wonder if someone had told me at that point when I was drinking and hiding and if it was just going to become amazing and blow my mind when I got sober and that the recovery would just keep getting better. I wonder if I would have quit sooner. I don't know. I mean, it is what it is. And it happened the way it happened for me. But I would just say, consider the fact that not the fact that's the wrong word. Consider the possibility that maybe just maybe it could be better on the other side. 
Awesome. Just consider it. Yep. I love it. Amy, how can people find you? Where can they go? Yeah, thank you so much. AmyLizHarrison.com is my website. And I'm Amy Liz Harrison on Instagram and all those platforms, the social medias, if you will. You're right, <laughs> right. Whereas right. Xers and above. <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. know. Uh, awesome. Great. I will put all those links in the show notes. And Amy, it was awesome to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Duane. It was an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. And there you can find links to Amy's podcast, Eternally Amy, and all the links to her books as well. So check that out. And if you've enjoyed this episode of The Addicted Mind, think about writing a review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That really does help support the podcast. I really appreciate it. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in The Addicted Mind Podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.